John Lennon had a song which goes, uh, they, they ain't nobody you can hide when you're crippled inside. Mm -hmm. And it's true, we, you know, however we're wounded and however cleverly we may think we can disguise it from ourselves or others, we can't actually. It comes up one way or the other. Yes, that is Dr. Gabor Mate. And if you don't recognize that voice, then perhaps you missed part one of our in-person, very real conversation. Or maybe you missed his imprint on the world as perhaps its foremost trauma and addictions expert. Or maybe you're just not good with voices, and that's okay. Today we get into part two of the conversation. A few things to listen for. Is this world manufacturing narcissism? Why siblings can each turn out so very differently? Your three brains, yes, three. What to do when all hope seems lost, and it's probably the best answer I've heard yet. Plus, Gabor shares his biggest failure, which leads to an incredible success. Also, quickly, before we dive back into our chat and Gabor turning the tables on me with a tough question, don't forget to subscribe to Live and Help Live so you don't miss an episode and to potentially save the life of a cute little puppy. What? You never know how the simplest of choices can have the most profound effect. So you might as well also leave a great review while you're at it. You can never be too safe. Her hair is curly, her teeth are pearly. She's got an edge, but she's still pretty girly. Oh, oh, nothing rhymes with Dahlia. I wish that that wasn't my superpower. I wish that when I was sad, I showed my sadness. Angry, show my anger, show all of these things, because with all of these shows that I put on, I never showed me. And that's, uh, I think, a yeah. lot of people. And how is that for you? Uh, you know, to say that is energizing. Mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's exhausting, those coping mechanisms and behaviors that you develop when you're going through trauma, yeah. to carry them through life and they become a normalized state for you. You said this to me, like, you know, you wear a winter coat in yeah. winter. Yeah. You wear it in the summer, we need to we need to have a conversation yeah. about this. Yeah. And we glorify in our society fight, be a, a fighter. We glorify survival mode. But the thing is, life shouldn't be a fight. And it manifests in other ways. Because you could think that you're hiding your problem but it manifests somewhere else mm -hmm. in your physical health. John Lennon had a song which goes, uh, they, they ain't nobody you can hide when you're crippled inside. Mm -hmm. And it's true, we, you know, however we're wounded and however cleverly we may think we can disguise it from ourselves or others, we can't actually. Mm -hmm. It comes up one way or the other. I talk about all these things, I talk a good game and it could sound pretty uh, self-righteous, which I hope it's not coming across that way, but I know these things. I know a lot of my issues and I think a lot of people are familiar enough with their own issues to assess them as well. Yet you don't, I don't take that time to fix them, to stop them, to... Well, it goes back to what I said earlier. You know about yourself, but you don't know yourself. So how do you get to the, that point? Because 
take any take any behavior that, that's compensatory, you know, that mm-hmm. you're performing, you know. There's an assumption behind it. And the assumption is that without this behavior or with this image, I'm not acceptable, I'm not enough. Mm-hmm. Well, that means you don't know yourself. Because mm-hmm. if you knew yourself, you knew that you can't not be enough. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't not be all right. You can't not be mm, wor- worthy, you know, or worthwhile. So that, to the extent that, and I'm not talking about you, by the way, personally. Sure. I'm talking about ourselves, anybody. To the extent that I am or anybody else doesn't see themselves, doesn't know themselves, they have to compensate for that ignorance by all kinds of behaviors and images and uh, mm-hmm. presentations. So you can know a lot about yourself without actually knowing yourself. I still think that's even understanding that point, you know, to get to that place. We try to find justifications why it's okay Mm -hmm. to continue being in whatever situation we're in because either it will rectify itself some way or, you know what, somebody else has it worse. Not for the first time in this conversation I meant to ask you, have you read a book called Educated by Tara Westover? I've not read that. Oh my, you want to read it? Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a, it's a big bestseller. It's been out for a, year, a few years now. <clears throat> and I just finished rereading it for the second time this morning, so it's very much on my mind. Mm-hmm. And I did an event with Tara in um, New York a couple of weeks ago, and she goes up as a backwoods country mountain girl in an evangelically... And she really had to fight to become herself in the face of the abusive evangelical family that she grew up in. Mm-hmm where she gives this nervous laughter that you talked about when she's actually being hurt. Oh, really? Yeah, that's when I, that's when I first thought of it, you know, trying to pretend to herself and to others that mm-hmm. n- nothing bad is happening here, yeah. you know. But then she really does the work, mm-hmm. which is ongoing for her, but the whole book is about become authentic in the face of the pressure to fit in mm-hmm. with a context in which her true self cannot possibly fit, you know? Mm-hmm. You'd love that book. I will read that book. It's, it's called Educated, okay. Tyra Westover. All right. Maybe I'll even have her on my show. Well, she's, she's wonderful. I think I will have her on my no, show. No, she's totally wonderful. Okay. And talking about the whole idea of authenticity and, and finding what our authenticity is, you know, you're, you're taught, even like people who become the influencers that, you know, we, you mentioned on Instagram or this or that, if they don't follow a certain process that falls into the guidelines so they can say that they're being as authentic as they want, yeah. we are being taught, you know, in, yeah. to what Jamie Lee Curtis says, <clears throat> what authenticity is. We're taught to be that. So we are going against our very nature. And this is <laughs> growing like more and more and this is what kids are being born into right now they see their parents on their phones my dog my dog is smart enough to try to slap my phone out of my hand (laughs) he's a clever guy he's a rescue dog he he you know what um it's funny because i rescued him but i often say he rescued me and it's i 
And I think that that's where kids are at too. And they want to slap those phones yeah. out of their parents' hands, but then yeah. they're being taught that this is normal. And then their parents, to get the kids to stop slapping their phones out of their hands, here's a phone, <laughs> play oh. with it. Yeah. Oh, well, I talk about it in the book. It's, it's uh, actually toxic for the brain. Mm-hmm. It's highly addictive. Mm-hmm. And it interferes with the brain development of, the, with the development of circuits. Mm-hmm. that help you be empathetic, that helps you understand yourself, that, that, that drive curiosity. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, I mean, it's just, uh, we're raising a generation of, of people whose brains are functioning at a lower level because of the digital technology. An- another conversation this reminds me of that we had previously. So we're talking about trauma. You never had that word brought up in med school. Yeah. And I said to you, well, you know what, we, we should teach kids about empathy and compassion and self-compassion and trauma in school. And you said, well, no, this is something that they, correct me if I'm wrong, no, yeah. this is something that this is, this is just learned in their existence and being kids and being people. Uh, it should be it's not learned, it's developed. Developed. It's not that, let's see, I can learn a foreign language. Mm-hmm. Or can I learn how to do math? That's learning. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I can sit here forever, ever, develop beautifully, but never know how to do algebra. I have to learn that, you know? But empathy, compassion, connection, those are developmental attributes. Kids develop that if they're given the right environment. That's what scares me. Yeah. And I, I keep saying the word scare, fear, yeah. scare, whatever. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a person who does everything afraid in life because I'm yeah. afraid, but I do things anyways. But I'm afraid that kids won't have that you know yeah. you're saying well this is something they'll develop well what if they don't because we are well if they don't then we have to ask why we have to ask what are the conditions that are lacking for them and how can we provide them and what experiences can we give them where those attributes will develop mm-hmm. they can't be taught i think people turn away we turn away we don't want to see homeless people because i think that when you look at uh a homeless person, you don't, people will turn away, maybe not say hi, this, that, because they see themselves. You know, you're afraid of the worst case scenario that yeah. can happen in your life. And so we're turning more and more away from compassion. Self-compassion, it's so much easier for me to be compassionate for somebody than it is for me to be of compassionate course. for myself. Of course. Where do you see the hope in us developing those things that we may not have developed, that may be underdeveloped, that we're quashing in other people as they try to develop it now. Because I, I see a lot of loss of that compassion, probably because of a self-compassion problem. Well, <clears throat> as a society deepens into crisis, which most of us would agree this one is, uh, two things can happen. One is that people get more stressed and more, um, you go more into flight and fight mode. Mm-hmm. They become more self-concerned, more narcissistic, um, more just protective of themselves and their little circle. But, but the same crisis can also cause people to start asking questions mm-hmm. about what's going on here and why is it going on and doesn't have to go, does it have to go on like this? Mm-hmm. So I think we're seeing both things happening. So even as things get more fractious and more hostile and more, more divided, at the same time, more and more people are asking questions. I mean, look, this, uh, 
there's a reason why this book is the number one best-selling book in Canada the last two weeks, you know, in terms of the non-fiction books, and it's why it's on the New York Times bestsellers list. Instant bestseller, New York yeah, Times. Yeah, well, instant or not, but instant. <laughs> it's pretty so good. It, it, it only took 10 years, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> instant. No, but what I'm saying is, um, because a lot of people are interested in asking questions. Mm-hmm. And look at, and not just not just my book. <clears throat> There's at least three books on the bestsellers list that I can think of right now. Besides two others, besides my own, you know, Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, uh, Bruce Perry and Oprah's What Happened to You. I mean, why why are all of a sudden people reading books about trauma? People are craving kindness. They're craving help. Well, exactly. And and if you ask yourself, if anybody asked themselves. When do you feel more yourself? When do you feel more at ease, more at peace within yourself? You think more mm, ease is how I put it within your body. When you're being grasping and selfish and competitive and aggressive or greedy, and you've just done something along those lines, or when you're being generous and open and kind-hearted and and, and, and compassionate. When do you feel more at ease in your body? The vast, vast majority of people say. I feel much more at peace when I'm kind and compassionate. Mm-hmm. Why? Because that's much closer to our true nature. I think, that's, I think that is the default response. Because, you know, people will say, I've lost faith in humanity. Yeah. I think we've been reprogrammed against our humanity. Yeah. And there's this video I watched on Instagram. And yeah. it's a video that went viral. And the reason I think it went viral is because how much people crave kindness. What mm-hmm. happens is it's a video that was caught on tape from a camera at a train station mm-hmm. and a man gets his leg caught between the platform and the train. Okay. So if the train moves, yeah. he's dead. Yeah. And immediately somebody rings the alarm for help. Yeah. They cannot free this man, you know, pull his leg out of there. There's nothing they can do. What happens next? You see all of the passengers get off of this six-person, six-car train mm. and push the train, people mm. pushing a six-car train mm. so that it moves enough that they could pull the man's leg out. This was something, and mm. it's swarming, right? I've studied the science of kindness, and I don't know if you've looked at that. You've studied everything, so I feel like you may have, but I've learned about swarming, and this is what put me onto my whole idea and how to help people. Swarming as in animals do it? Swarming, yeah, the same way bees and birds swarm. So like people will swarm together without having a conversation and you naturally know what you're supposed to do. You know you're supposed to help. And that was a moment of swarming, which showed our default is to help somebody and we know how to team up and do it together and as much as you know you might think well this went viral because a man almost died i think or i'd like to think it went viral because people craved that humanity and it proved it to them yeah exactly and it makes you feel good to see someone helping somebody else of course yeah well i think that speaks to who we actually are as creatures Mm -hmm. you know but and the question is, why is that so difficult? It's because this talks, this culture teaches us that we're greedy, selfish, competitive, individualistic, everybody out for themselves, and this is the way to success. So the toxicity of the culture lies very much in um, 
inculcating values and behaviors that actually run contrary to who we are. So as a result, we suffer. So somebody who's suffering, mm -hmm. somebody who feels as though there's nowhere for me to turn, there's nothing I'm able to do. Those aren't feelings. Somebody who thinks there's nowhere for them to turn? Yeah, but it's an important distinction. Because mm -hmm. I never argue with anybody's feelings. If you feel sad, you feel sad. Who am I to tell you that you don't yeah. feel sad? If you're angry, no, you're not angry. But a thought, you can say, well, is that really true? So then to look at it in a way where somebody who says, I can't anymore. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. So what can they do in that position when they can't afford help, help is expensive, they are lonely? Well, well the first thing I would say to them is who's even talking that way? Mm -hmm. Like which part of you is talking that way? What parts are there that you would address in this situation? Like well, that's the part that's there is the part that cares about you. Otherwise, you wouldn't care about any of that stuff. So that is a part of you that really cares about you. That is, I think, something that people really need to... That's well, a perfect question to ask yourself in that moment. Well, yeah, that's part of what I do. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I and then I'd say, well, okay, so you can't afford a high-priced therapist. Um, can you afford to read a book from the library? Lots of great books out there. Um, can you go on YouTube and listen to people talk about finding yourself and trauma? Can you take a breath? Can you go on YouTube and find some breathing practices? Can you take a cold shower? Mm -hmm. Because taking a cold shower can make a huge difference to your nervous system. Can you take a walk? Can you look at a tree? Mm -hmm. Are there online groups that you could join that, where you could have useful conversations with people? I mean, there's a lot of stuff people can do. So somebody will say, it won't work for me. Then I'd say, who's saying that? Which part of you believes that it won't, you know, won't work for you? And yeah, I'm sure that you've had lots of disappointment. And, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but, but, but which part of you is convinced? Well, the part that is convinced that it won't work for you is the part that was hurt, hurt so badly in childhood that you saw no way out. And you're still seeing it through the eyes of that child. Does everything go back to childhood? Can people experience a trauma at 16, 21, 29, 33 that will impact them so severely as an adult? If you look at the studies on post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, <clears throat> 100 soldiers go into battle, 20 come out with PTSD, 80 don't. Why not? The 20 that go home with PTSD, other people were traumatized in childhood. And the adult experience simply triggers the old trauma. Um, even in concentration camp survivors, those that had um, safe, supportive early childhoods had a much better chance of coming out of it without significant uh, trauma symptoms. I think it all goes back to childhood. I think that's when our brain is formed, that's when our personality is formed, that's when our fundamental beliefs about the world are formed, that's when we develop either positive or negative attitudes towards ourselves, towards our possibilities. I think it all happens in the template of childhood. And later on, how we deal with adversity that comes on later on is very much conditioned by how we were first raised in the first place. 
a lot of um, people who lived through the Holocaust yeah. that I've talked with. <clears throat> because I feel as though if you want to turn to somebody who can tell you how to get through a hard time, a lot of them have... Mm. <laughs> that's the hardest. I mean, you you lived through the Holocaust. You were well, very young. A, well, as an infant, yeah. You were an infant. But the people who lived through the Holocaust, the common thing that I hear from them is, one, they knew that what could never be taken from them was, you know, whether they call it their soul or their spirit mm. or however mm. they phrase it. And the other thing is humor. They used humor to get mm. through it. Yeah. Is humor something you learn as a child? Is humor something that is in you? Well, humor is an aspect of playfulness, and, and, and play is in us for sure. Mm -hmm. We were born with a circuitry in our brain for play. How we deploy that later depends very much on circumstances. A lot of comedians become comedians because they had very sad childhoods, mm -hmm. and the humor was a way of deflecting the sadness. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Robin Williams or Gilda Radner, they say there was specifically a way of connecting with their mothers, making her laugh, then I could connect with her. But that already means that the child is having to work to create a connection that should have been there in the first place. <laughs> so that's why you have a lot of sad comedians. But I want to look at the idea of truth because I heard you in conversation, it may have been with Lewis Howes, I can't remember exactly mm -hmm. who, and you mentioned truth and he asked you know, what truth was and you said, well, Truth is a lived experience. It's yeah. not a fact. Yeah. And I think that understanding truth is a lived experience, when you said that, it changes a lot about how you can look back at your childhood mm -hmm. or other things in your life. Explain this. Explain truth. Yeah. So there's a famous scene in the New Testament where Yeshua, or Jesus, is brought before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea. And um, I'm not talking history here. I don't know what happened in history. I'm talking about the story as told in the New Testament. And um, Pontius and Jesus have this conversation. And Pontius Pilate says, the Roman governor says, well, who are you? And what are you up to? And Jesus says, I'm here to speak the truth. And, and um, Pontius Pilate says, well, what is truth? <laughs> And Jesus' answer is one of the greatest answers in history. He says nothing. And the reason he says nothing is because Pilate represents egotistical, selfish power, the mind, the, ego the egoic mind. Mm -hmm. And the egoic mind will never understand what the truth is. And that's why Jesus doesn't answer him. Because the truth has nothing to do with the um, egoic intellect. Uh, which can grasp some aspect of truth, but not truth itself. So the literal fact is that we think of our brain as sort of the analyst of truth, but it isn't. The brain up here is only part of our knowing apparatus. So have you ever had the experience of having a strong gut feeling about something mm. and ignoring it and being sorry afterwards that you ignored it? Regularly. Yeah. Well, why is that? Because you, that's you, your gut knows. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that truth is here. Hmm. Have you ever had the experience of, I know this in my heart. Have you had that experience? Yeah. Okay, there's a brain here too. Mm -hmm. So actually, there's a nervous system in the heart, there's a nervous system in the gut. These are parts of knowing the truth as well. So when the, these three are aligned, 
brain here, brain here, and brain in the gut, then we have some sense of truth. When we only know up here... That's a feeling of peace that you just described. That's, yeah, that's exactly it. Being aligned with truth is what peace is. Mm -hmm. That's why it's an experience, I said. It wasn't a, a yeah. fact. Yeah. That's a, that sounds like thinking about that feeling is very nice and refreshing. I wonder how often people actually feel at peace. Well, very few of us, very rarely. That's the nature of the culture that we live in. That's what addiction, people feel at peace in the moment while they're experiencing it, the pleasure. It's momentary peace, yeah. yeah. But, it's, but it's, it's induced by some external agent or behavior. So somebody who says right now, well, you know, I don't have any addictions. People often think about it in terms of drug, yeah, alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What addictions do people have other than even drugs, alcohol, work, uh, this, that, that we mentioned before, those I can't even remember. But what addictions do people have that they don't realize are addictions? Well, work is a big one. Yeah. Relationships is another. Mm -hmm. um, well, food, obviously. Mm -hmm. Eating, shopping, power. Hmm. I mean, politics is addicted to power. Try and, try and get one of them to give it up. It's like an addict in withdrawal. Yeah. Look at Donald Trump right now. I mean, he's like an addict in withdrawal. Mm -hmm. No, it didn't happen. I didn't <laughs> lose the election. And he probably even believes it. He's probably made himself believe it already. No, he's a very traumatized person. Uh, a horrible childhood. And his father was just a mean devil of a man, a sociopath. His psychologist niece calls uh, Fred Trump Sr. a sociopath. And uh, he was Trump's father. And Trump's brother dragged himself to death. Now, Trump is addicted to power and greed and, uh, and grandiosity, you know. Uh, now, a lot of politicians are, and we reward them for it. Mm -hmm. So in this society, a lot of... We complain uh, and reward about it, but reward well, we them Well, we ultimately reward them, because yeah. we, you know, uh, profit, my God. People are willing to kill millions for the sake of profit. And then you sit on the board of philanthropic organizations and give money away, and they think what saints we are, you know? Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, their junk food that they sold or the cigarettes or the liquor or the um, gasoline or whatever that they sell kills the earth and kills people. So that there's a lot of addiction to profit. Now, the person in that case is not the one who experiences the harm directly. But it's, it's addictive, try and get them to give it up. We talk about Donald Trump as a narcissist, but yeah. we are very quick to toss, you know, narcissist onto people these days, that mm -hmm. term. And I, I wonder, because you talk about these things that develop from childhood, our attachment with our parents, how could you have, let's say, people who are raised by the same parents in the same way, mm -hmm. One becomes a narcissist, yeah. and one doesn't. Well, first of all, narcissism is a normal developmental phase. There's a time in life we're all narcissists. We all think it's all about ourselves. That's the early childhood years. We think it's, you know, so if, when great stuff happens, hey, I must be a great person. When terrible things happen, I must be a terrible person. Mm -hmm. Or when terrible things happen, I must, make, I must be, the world is so dangerous that I must become very selfish and self-regarding in order to survive, and that's Trump, mm -hmm. you know? Um, 
as to why two kids raised in the families, same families, because no two kids are raised in the same family. No two children have the same parents. Do you have siblings? Yes, older and younger. You weren't raised in the same family. You were never the oldest child, were you? You've never had that experience of being the oldest child. Mm -hmm. You've had the experience of the middle child, which is often very difficult, by the way, because mm -hmm. you no longer you, you need to have the respect and authority of the oldest, mm -hmm. or the cuteness and lovability of the mm -hmm. youngest. You, you can't compete with a baby, mm -hmm. you know, for cuteness, you know. So, so no two children. Not only that, when your parents had you, and when they had your younger siblings, perhaps they might have been in a different stage in their own personal development mm -hmm. or in a different stage of, of their relationship yeah. or a different economic position. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, you never had the experience of not having somebody older in the family than you. On the other hand, you never had the experience, at least until your younger sibling came along, of the insult of I was the only one and all of a sudden I have to share my attention with this young interloper. <laughs> which, is, which is what your oldest sibling had to do, yeah. you know. So no two children, not only that, even more importantly, temperamentally every child is different, mm -hmm. and that means they evoke a different part of the parent. Right. So even if the parent loves either kid, the kids equally, which is not, I'm not questioning, they will not respond to the child the same way. They will not, the child will not evoke the same responses from the parent, <laughs> one child or the other. So no two kids have the same parents. So. No two kids have the same parents, which puts it in a completely different context when you talk about it like that. Narcissism in general, though, when we're looking at that right now as society progresses or perhaps regresses, when we look at the social media wildfires that are burning right now. Yeah. So is narcissism being manufactured? Well. It's being catered to, is what it is. Like narcissism is a normal phase to go through, but mm -hmm. if your development is healthy, if your conditions f for healthy development are present, you'll grow out of it. Mm -hmm. At some point you'll grow out of it. You'll realize that there's other people with a different experience than yours, mm -hmm. and uh, you'll be able to respect that they have a different experience, that it's not all about you. You know, you just learn that. It's just a natural part of healthy development. If the conditions are not right, though, you get stuck in that narcissistic phase, and then you spend the rest of your life like that. Now, a, a healthy culture would not reward that. They would say, sorry, you need to grow up. But in this culture, you become president of the United States or, or the head of a corporation. Uh, I'm not singling Trump out, by the way. He's not such a unique phenomenon. He's just happened to have attained a lot of fame and position. Um, but this society, which is bases itself on the view of human nature as being greedy, selfish, individualistic, and aggressively competitive, it rewards narcissism. Well, so that's what politicians are. I mean, we complain about them constantly. Politicians are corporate heads. But we would never, you know, if you talk about these people who are running, let's say, in, in your uh, constituency and you'd say, well, I would never hire them for a job to work for me, yeah. but I will choose them to be the leader and the person who guides the community. Yeah. We're in a very weird state when people whom we wouldn't want to work for us in any capacity were choosing to lead us. Well, not only that, <laughs> would somebody who's chronically lying to you makes promises and doesn't keep them, would, you have, would they be your friends? Not a chance. Uh, but we make them our leaders, yeah. Just one last question. Sure.
So we often talk about our successes in society. We talk way too much about successes, yeah, I think. Yeah. So I try to talk to, I try to get people to talk about their failures because mm -hmm. it seems as though it's an earthquake in your life. Mm -hmm. Mountains do not rise without earthquakes. Yeah. What yeah. was your failure? Well, funny thing is, there's a British program called Three Failures, and I've been just I'll be doing when I'm in London in a couple of weeks, and uh, um, I um, the biggest failure was myself as a parent. I just wasn't nearly present enough for my kids' childhood, as a Empathic and empathetic and, and, and sort of emotionally stable human being. Mm. And that's had an impact. I also learned a lot, but I learned it at their expense. Mm. And then you go on to write the myth of normal with your son. Yeah, then I go and, and help thousands and tens of thousands and who knows how many, and I get that all the time. But still, that learning happened through a particular trajectory that if I could do it again, I'd do it differently. Which, by the way, most parents would. Most people say that about most anything they yeah. did in your life. Well, thank yeah. you for being so open about that, so gracious with your time and the myth of normal trauma, illness and healing in a toxic culture is... Uh, I think that that is when we talk about when a person is at that point where they say, I can't. I don't know how to keep going. I think that's a good place to start. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. It's been nice to talk with you. Dr. Gabor Mate. My <laughs> applause. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Please. Paparazzi, please. Step back. Did we pass the audition? <laughs> did we get the job? So there you have it, Dr. Gabor Mate. And let me tell you, the behind the scenes of our story is a story unto itself. I'm sure it'll pop up in the future, but for now, watch for some Gabor videos to pop up on my new YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Dahlia Kurtz, and watch and listen for Gabor's son, Daniel Mate, to join on an upcoming episode after a reveal like the one Gabor just made. I had to get his son's side of the story too. So, until next time, thanks for dropping by the Neighboralia. And don't forget, if you loved this episode, please leave a review. And if you didn't love this episode, please leave behind a sizable donation to help me improve. Oh, look at that. Now you loved it. Perfect. I look forward to your review. Now go, live, and help live. And yes, Gabor got the job. Nothing rhymes with Dahlia. Nothing rhymes with Dahlia. Nothing rhymes with Dahlia. Neighboralia.